I'm Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams. I'm a writer, activist, author, and ordained Zen priest. And you're listening to Mindful by Design, a Himalaya learning audio course all about mindfulness, meditation, evidence of how it all works, and some guidance to make it work for you. Throughout this series of conversations and accompanying meditations, I have introduced you to some core principles of the mindfulness practice by way of both science and lived experience. While our journey today via this series concludes, hopefully, with the foundation we have laid together, your own journey in mindfulness will continue to grow. If you haven't yet discovered the exclusive guided meditations of this series, I encourage you to go to Himalaya.com mindful and enter promo code MINDFUL at checkout to get your first 14 days free. Let's get started. On today's final episode, we're talking about what it really means to have a mindfulness practice and how that plays out for your own life. In the accompanying meditation, I'll also talk about how it is that you maintain that practice. Many of us may think of mindfulness as something that's about fixing ourselves. And it turns out it's not really quite that. It's so much more, but you do have to work at it to peel back the layers and get right down to the core of what it could mean to your life. The idea of working hard at something may not always appeal to all of us, but like anything else that's really worth it, like anything that's going to impact the whole of our life, the effort we put into it is the effort that we get out of it. And I'd like to encourage you to get as much out of your practice as you can. That brings us to my conversation with Young Pueblo, a.k.a. Diego Perez. Diego is a writer, activist, poet, and speaker who, once he started meditating, realized that when we release our personal burdens, we contribute to a global peace. Online, he reaches hundreds of thousands of people every month through his written works that focus on the reality of self-healing, the movement from self-love to unconditional love, and the wisdom that comes when we truly work on knowing ourselves. His first book, Inward, was self-published and quickly became a bestseller on Amazon and is now available in bookstores around the world. I chose to speak with Diego because rather than being a quote-unquote teacher, he's a regular guide that found himself running into the challenges of life and he did something about it. Coming to live in the USA from Ecuador, Diego also allowed himself to take on a practice that wasn't the same as the religion that his family of origin had come from. So he was able to distinguish the practice and philosophy away from the idea of mindfulness or meditation as religion so that he could make it work for his life while also finding a way to make sense of it in the faith that he was originally born into. Now, on to our conversation. Our guest today is known as Young Pueblo, and I'm going to let him share how he would like to be addressed. How about we start with that and tell us a little bit about your name, Young Pueblo. Sure. So, um, so the, the name my parents gave me 
is Diego Perez, and that's what I normally go by. But I write under the name Young Pueblo really intentionally. I try to make a sort of like a framework for my work to exist inside of. And it's essentially the idea that humanity is very young and Mm -hmm. that we're transitioning into a greater maturity, Um, especially around the very simple ideas that we were taught as children, you know, to clean up after ourselves, to not harm each other, to tell the truth, to generally be kind to one another. Um, We may be able to do those things as individuals, but um, as a human collective, we really struggle on those basic fundamental things. So you have lots of places that you you express in ways that you express yourself primarily as a writer and a poet. And I've been really struck by the way particularly that you share on Instagram these little bite-sized pieces that just feel like they're um, entryways, like doorways. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no pun, well, maybe pun intended, inward. Uh, so, so tell me how it is you came about having a mindfulness practice and doing this amazing work inward? So I think similar to other people is just suffering. Um, Mm. (laughs) Suffering was great enough to Mm. (laughs) call me inward. And um, yeah, I started back in 2012 when I um, I did my first silent 10-day course with uh, Sengoenka in the Sengoenka tradition. Would you you say a little bit about that tradition for folks that don't know? Yeah, so it's um, Esanguenka is a Burmese man of Indian descent who um, trained under Sayaji Ubakin. So it's a Burmese Theravadan um, lineage that um, basically just teaches the Buddhist teaching. Um, and it's a experiential teaching that um, helps you gain wisdom by observing within the framework of the body. You know, connecting to the framework of the body, being able to observe impermanence. Um, within it just helped not only purify my mind, but just opened me up to so many, you know, layers of conditioning that I had been holding on to that I was really unaware of. And once that started uh, evaporating and dissipating, you know, slowly over time with practice, um, all this creativity started emerging that I didn't really have access to before. And I started writing a little poem here and there. And then I realized that the idea of healing was so profound to me. And it gave me another context for liberation because all of my work previous to that was in the world of, of activism and organizing. Um, so I had understood the collective understanding of liberation, but the internal, intimate, personal understanding of liberation was very new to me. Um, so having those two things connected and sort of balanced out helped me understand that healing for the individual was possible and that healing for the collective was possible. But the two things really need to work together. Well, we certainly agree on that. Before you got to this point in your journey, uh, where did where did you come from? Where, where, where did where I do, come where, from? Yeah, where do we where do we <laughs> <laughs> where what is the origin story of of Diego? Yeah, so I was born in Guayaquil, Ecuador, so in Ecuador, um, a little country right in between Colombia and Peru in South America. So my mom and dad decided that they wanted to move to the United States, and we immigrated here when I was about four years old, and I grew up in Boston. And it was, you know, difficult. It was very, it was wonderful and difficult. Um, we experienced a lot of poverty. And I think, you know, a lot of people who are considering their trauma these days, I really think of my personal trauma was experiencing poverty. Um, there were so many uh, different moments of intensities that were externally pushed onto our family that were very difficult. And um, I think that was like 
sort of the opening that led me into the world of activism and then later into the world of healing. But yeah, I grew up in Boston. I started organizing when I was about 15 years old with a group called Boston Youth Organizing Project and um, really got to see the power that people can have when they come around a, a particular cause. And it just, you know, it was so fascinating to just like, being a part of this group of of like 15 to 18 year olds who are just actively changing the material reality of their city and their schools and, mm -hmm. um, and not taking no for an answer <laughs> in terms of when we're like facing all these, you know, the mayor and city councilors and all these people with a lot of power, but groups of people have massive amounts of power as well. So you participated as a, you know, fairly young in, in activism and, developed a sense of, you know, got a taste, I would say, for for the mm -hmm. potential for collective liberation, as you say. What what was uh, insufficient, I guess, is what I would ask uh, for you in from that perspective that then led you to look for something else? Yeah, thank you for positioning that question in that way, because it did feel like an ins insufficiency, something was missing. And um, the group that I was a part of, we were incredibly successful. Like we won tons of campaigns and we were really, you know, a force to be reckoned with in the city, but I still did not feel great. And when I transitioned into college, a lot of these uh, patterns just gained more and more energy that were, you know, gearing me towards um, sadness, towards anxiety. And I had no real language or method to be able to deal with these things that were manifesting internally. And um, I developed a lot of like complexes that, you know, kept me really far away from myself that kept me, you know, kept my relationships really superficial with my friends or, or my girlfriend um, at the time. And we, it was a struggle, you know, it was a struggle because I found myself then getting very attached to pleasure and to just pursuing anything that would keep me away from my emotions and keep me busy. I became incredibly unhealthy. I started using a variety of different drugs and, you know, would use anything that helped me keep that distance between me and reality. Mm -hmm. And would you mind naming uh, what you said complexes? Could you give some words to what, what kind of complexes you? Yeah, I think um, it's interesting. Yeah. Cause that's like a, that's like a set of conditioning. I think it was normally the incessant like attachment to fun Mm -hmm. Um, like this, this idea of fun, this idea of like pleasure streaming through the body, um, even though I wasn't aware of it then, but that's what I was chasing after. And everything else became like subservient to that, you know, like I wouldn't really show up, um, with my friends unless they were like, if we were talking about something serious, I couldn't really quite handle that. But mm -hmm. if we were like smoking a lot of pot and playing video games, that was great. Mm -hmm. And, um, so chasing after that to the point where, you know, I would directly and indirectly hurt people and just would not be able to show up for them. It's created a lot of difficulty in my life. You know, one of the things I'm, I'm really interested in understanding for just my understanding of your own journey, and also I think will be very important to people that are getting to listen to this, is how, first of all, how Mm -hmm. Does a man that does an Ecuadorian man <laughs> find his way into a tradition that is, you know, historically Buddhist? And uh, what does that mean to you? Like, how did you how did you enter that relationship? So, like, how did you find it, right? But also, how that bigger how? Like, how did you yeah. how, how did you allow yourself 
to enter into that relationship, given that I imagine, you know, your own family and uh, your peoples have, have their own traditions. And so tell me a little bit about how that unfolds for you. Yeah, I think it, it felt really like when I personally got in there and I walked in into my first course and started sitting, there was a, a strange familiarity that I felt with the practice that really felt otherworldly. I was like, okay, I, it almost felt like I had done that before, um, even though I hadn't, I had meditated once for 20 minutes without knowing what I was doing before I did my first 10 day course. So I had no real background or, any, or anything like that. But um, it was a struggle getting through the course. And it was also really a struggle being in a, in a completely white space. Mm. Um, Cause I had taken the, the course I ended up doing was in Washington state. So I think it was myself and one other person who was a person of color in this course. And um, so that, that struggle of just like, you know, being from the inner city of Boston and, you know, feeling on the, on the defensive um, around white people in that time, that was like my pattern you know, being able to deal with that like firsthand was tough, but also really good for me because there was so much tension that I was building around, you know, people that I had, you know, had no idea what to expect from them. But um, when I brought that home, right, when I had come, I came back home to Boston, told my mom what I had been doing, and she started noticing the changes in me. She knew that something positive was happening, but it was not in accordance with our tradition because we grew up Roman Catholic. And, you know, I used to be an altar server, like I would, you know, our family used to be a big part of the church. But my mom, after we, you know, I shared with her, um, she started understanding what we were doing as a path to sainthood. She understood, she was like, oh, right, like, this is something that can purify you at a profound level. And similar to this, like, wide spectrum of, of saints that there are in, um, in Catholicism, it's something that you can do to, like, take yourself into greater communion into greater truth and like understand more, you know, understand love at a very profound level. Mm-hmm. And um, we were able to sort of like connect, you know, meditation with that. Mm-hmm. And, um, and she, she was really supportive. You know, she was like, cause she saw, she was like, I stopped, you know, using drugs and mm-hmm. I was being much more loving to her and my father and, mm-hmm. um, you know, started more, much more smoothly transitioning into becoming a, an adult. Um, she was very supportive. <laughs> so tell me again, what age is this? So I started when I was 24. Okay. That was when I did my first course. And then I, I kept doing, um, I, I think I did an, another course like two months later because that felt the transformation felt so profound and I didn't really understand the practice fully. I just mm-hmm. knew that I felt better. Like I was trying my best and I was like, wait, I feel like there's more space in my mind and um, I'm more, much more in touch with my emotions and I'm generally much happier. So I knew I was like, okay, whatever this is, I need more of this. So, so I kept going back and then I would do like a a few, like maybe three or four courses a year after that. And how old are you now? I am 32. Okay. So you got a a few years under your belt there. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a little while. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I really appreciate your sharing that, you know, in our last um, episode, Congressman Tim Ryan was also an altar boy. And, and oh, you know, yeah. from the like Midwest, you know, like Ohio mm-hmm. working class mm-hmm. and really had to, um, you know, figure that out for himself of like, how, how do we relate, especially pretty much all of us in, you know, North America are some, are, are, are converts if, you know, if we're not, if we're not of Asian descent and don't come from the motherlands right. of these, right. these practices. And so reconciling um this as as practice of do you consider yourself still practicing catholic are you buddhist are you like how how do you hold Uh, yourself in there 
I think I don't adhere to anything anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I take the the teaching of the Buddha very seriously, but I don't consider myself a Buddhist for some reason that doesn't really like feel like it fully applies. Um, but I, you know, I read the suttas and I try to learn as much as I can from monks and, um, and I continued practicing within the Goenka Seaju Bakin tradition. So, so you would say that there's a way for people to both take the teaching seriously and not have to take on, you know, the teachings, various teachings from lineages. I mean, we can talk about the Buddhist teachings, maybe other things as well, and not necessarily have to convert or think of yourself. (laughs) No, no, not at all. Yeah. The one thing that I really liked that my, um, that Goenka would say is that we're here to convert people from misery to happiness and that's Mm. it. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. so, and it's, it's quite beautiful, you know, seeing, um, like one time I was in a course and I was translating for a Catholic nun who, Mm. you know, so serious in her practice, but she had come because she knew that she could understand how to use her mind better. And Mm -hmm. if she understood how to use her mind better then her faith would deepen. It's nice where, you know, you can go into an environment where, yeah, we're learning this, you know, this master teacher's sort of exposition on the Dhamma, Mm -hmm. but it's, you know, free and for all to come and to enjoy. And it's similar to when, you know, during the Buddhist time, there were so many different people from different traditions who would practice his teaching for their liberation. Mm. What would you say (laughs) to people that, you know, are of a particular religion or, you know, not, right? Like they're kind of like, yeah, religion, I'm not trying to, <laughs> I'm not trying to go there. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, religions cause a lot of harm to many people. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful mm-hmm. and it's, you know, gorgeous in some traditions and expressions and, you know, the way people grew up with it, but it's also, uh, you know, cast a lot of harm for people. How, how, how would you invite them to relate to mindfulness practice? Oh, it's interesting. So I think that's one of the things that's helped just um, mindfulness and the Buddhist teaching kind of spread really easily is that it maintains this connection to reality, right? So it's like what's actually happening in this moment, as opposed to like taking yourself somewhere in your mind or creating devotion towards a particular like uh, mantra or a different God or something like that, you know, mm-hmm. and in, in no way to condemn another tradition. But that's that's something that I've been, I've been having conversations with lately and um, with people. And it's the fact that you're connecting with this everyday moment and the truths that you're connecting to are something that is very evident at the intellectual level, right? Impermanence. Mm -hmm. Things are changing. There's a a fundamental universal law. And when you're able to observe that, right, there's a purifying effect on the mind and your your life improves, your outlook, um, and you just, you know, you feel much better. But this isn't something that's too astounding, right? It's not too like far removed from, from anyone. Any, every human being can, to some degree, have an understanding of impermanence. But now can you bring that intellectual understanding to the level of experience? And I think that's what creates a lot of openings for people to be like, oh, right, I can really benefit from this. I can, I can benefit from being able to maintain my awareness in one particular place for a longer period of time or, you know, gaining more wisdom. Do you see your practice as mindfulness? I, I realize I just like imposed the idea of mindfulness. <laughs> so, the, so this, you know, this this series is called Mindful by Design, and and the premise of it is that we can all design a mindful life. That that that's what is right. available to us. Um, in many ways, for me, I'm thinking about it, it, someone's like you know getting out of the binary of either. Yeah 
the tradition and you come through the tradition and you buy the whole tradition. And I come from a tradition, right? Like I'm, 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 right. I grew myself up, you know, about your age as well in a tradition. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, come through lineage and, and lineage was important. And on the other hand, you know, understood for many people that the whole, I- whole idea of buying into a religion wasn't going to work for them. And I wanted more of my people, people right. that, I, you know, uh, and I mean, black and brown people and queer people and and people suffering, you know, like, like Goenka said, you know, mm-hmm. people that are in misery to be able to have access to and it took me a minute actually to get to the notion of mindfulness because I was like, eh, mindfulness, you know, sound like, you know, <laughs> mindfulness, like something like light. Um, but but to be fully in one's mind is how I think of it, right? And mind not as mind, heady, thoughty mind, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but mind as in, which I really appreciated and I feel like I learned something new, you know, mind through the relationship to the body, which is really the path that I move through is a kind of an embodied mindfulness and and think of that as a kind of mindfulness 3.0. So mindfulness, does that, does that stick for you? Does that work for you this term or do you? I I love that you said yeah, mindfulness through the body. Cause I mean, our practice, like with, um, in the Ubakin tradition, it's very similar where, um, the four, you can find the four foundations of mindfulness with through the sensations in the body, you know, you activate all four of them. I understand why the American or like in, particularly in the United States, the world mindfulness has become so popular, but I don't really think of myself as having a mindfulness practice. I'm, 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 I have a meditation practice. I'm meditating. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, and how would you distinguish those? One is like, I, so I practice Vipassana meditation mm-hmm. because that's what was given to me. And I distinguish them in that mindfulness sometimes does feel like it has a bit of separation from the Buddha. Um, mm. where you can be given mindfulness, but you won't necessarily know where it comes from or what tradition or, wh- or where the particular techniques of mindfulness, you don't know if you're getting Mahasi, you don't know if you're getting Glenka, you don't know if you're getting like, you know, from all these sort of um, Burmese or Thai or Sri Lankan teachers, you don't know what you're getting. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or it could be like a bit disconnected, but I like to say that I have a meditation practice because it's sort of out of respect, to be honest, mm-hmm. you know, because like I'm not trying mm-hmm. to like, appropriate these teachings, right? I'm constantly learning from them. So they do stem from the Buddha. And I want to honor that the fact that like, right, this is from the Buddhist teaching. So, so what I'm, what I'm practicing is Vipassana, you know, mm-hmm. um, insight. Mm-hmm. And to me, that feels much more just, you know, out of respect to Goenka and Ubakin and all the people that came before, before them, who've been holding this up for 2,600 years and not try to like, uh, remove it or, and this is not like in the condemnation way or not trying to like Americanize it, just trying to maintain the like sanctity of the way that it was given to me. But within Vipassana meditation, mindfulness is an aspect of what's happening and what we're practicing. But um, there's mm-hmm. more, there's more than that. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Um, inward, you, you wrote a book and, you know, one of the things that really struck me about that you wrote a book and that, you know, that there's a, a, I think many people have, you know, access you through, through primarily that work. And as a person that comes through a lineage, one of the things that struck me is that you were writing, you know, <laughs> the way that I grew up, you know, so actually this is like the 20th anniversary of my first book. Mm-hmm. And there was such, um, it's called Being Black Zen and the Art of Living with Fearlessness and Grace. 
And there was such um, hullabaloo, one would say, about my writing it because in the kind of Western Dharma meditation, it seemed like there was a pecking order to, mm. you know, who could publish and like when you could publish. And <laughs> yeah. I, I like, I love, you know, your generation is, you're, you're a little bit behind me. And I love that mm-hmm. your generation has this, um, like, I'm going to do it. Tell me about your decision to do it. And like, what were you trying to accomplish with the book? I, I did feel like an, a sense of like, oh, like, I'm just going to do this, you know, and um, I'm not really going to ask anybody for permission. <laughs> but, um, but I, so when I went into like writing the book, I completely understood that I was at the very beginning of my journey and that I had so much more to learn, right? Like nothing, there was no great attainment, nothing special, like just another person treading very slowly on the path. Mm. <laughs> and, um, but I knew that I didn't want to write about the Dhamma, right? I didn't want to write about Dharma because like I'm, I'm learning about it. I have, I have nothing to say about it. This is like a, a massive teaching that I'm, you know, have not mastered in any way. But I knew that healing was happening inside of me, that I was able to conceptualize this idea of healing and that it was so shocking and startling to me that this was even possible, especially growing up within a Western framework where, you know, if you have something, whether it's mental or physical, some type of ailment or something, you're just gonna have to deal with it for the rest of your life. The fact that you could even feel better was just like shocking. Mm. Um, so I wanted to write about that. I wanted to explore it through essays and poetry. And that felt okay. You know, being another imperfect person mm-hmm. who was just exploring their journey and trying to find uni- universals amongst all of the, you know, the wide spectrum of human conditioning um, felt like, you know, anybody is free to do that. But mm. I knew that I didn't want to um, write it through a publisher at first. I wanted to really just make it my own work. And um, I self-published it initially. And then after like six months of it being out as a self-published book, it was picked up by a publisher and so that it could reach a wider audience. Um, but I designed the book to be for those who were just coming into this like inner work. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I literally wrote it for people who had never meditated before and it was almost like giving, trying to give an introduction to ideas that you get to experience within your body as you start meditating or practicing mindfulness, but um, trying to just like de- develop a intellectual context for transformational work. I try to hit at, you know, things that I've experienced personally, right? Because all of these ideas, right? None, none of this stuff is new, but mm-hmm. my my perspective of my, my, my coming into these own lessons, that that's, what's new. It's my, my, my own perspective that I'm, I'm writing it under. Cause you know, people have been liberated for ages. So a lot of, you know, rarely can you actually say something that's actually new, but yeah, I really just wrote it for people who were, you know, they know that they could feel better and hopefully as a little bit of encouragement that it is possible. And even if you can start thinking in a different way, that may be of some service to them. I appreciate that. And many people appreciate that. Uh, You have said that your, I read, (laughs) that your favorite word is liberation, happens to be mine too. Mm -hmm. And one of the things about this particular episode uh, being the final episode in this series is that I really wanted to open the idea for people to move from the place of, you know, mindfulness is the way that we tend to think of it, right? In the Americanized way of, you know, just something that alleviates, you know, 
problems, things that's wrong with you, you know, the, the idea of like, you needed to, you need to fix yourself. And, Mm -hmm. you know, here Mm -hmm. is, here is yet another thing that can fix you and uh, really begin to suggest as you have um, so beautifully here, just through your own direct experience, the idea of, you know, transformation, you know, that transformation is possible, which I think is one of the distinctions between I wouldn't say not even just mindfulness, but also meditation, right? Like that mm-hmm. meditation in some ways can be reduced to the to the idea that is this it's this technique. It's like a thing, you know. People often yeah. talk about having it in their toolkit, yeah. right? And so um, to to just maybe um, hint at people that you know transformation is possible, and that transformation is on the other side of transformation is the potential for you know, what we call liberation. What what do you mean when you say liberation? When I think of individual personal liberation, I think of the total eradication of craving. Um, so, and that's something that is, you know, I'm glad that you're asking because it's not something that I talk about too often because I really try to meet people where they're at because I'm, you know, I'm talking to a, a large, you know, set of people who read my stuff. Um, I try to keep it focused on, healing and personal transformation, but healing is something that is fantastic. You know, that a lot of people are engaging with at very different levels, right? People are hitting at different levels of their mind, depending on, um, their like level of comfort essentially. But, um, there is the other side of things where, you know, you can be liberated you can be liberated from suffering. So like this path has been laid out and there are so mm-hmm. many different traditions that can show you a way of cultivating these mental qualities that can help you just overcome all suffering that you cause yourself. And to me, that idea of liberation, right, on the personal level is just, right, what is the source of suffering? It's craving and ignorance. And if you can eradicate craving and ignorance, then you can come out of suffering. It's like a serious spiritual path. So <laughs> not everybody's been, right? Like not everybody. <laughs> we, are, we are in a capitalist society. What do, you, what do you mean eliminate craving? I mean, isn't like craving, isn't like that, isn't that what we do? That's what we do. Yeah. And you know, that's different. You know, you want to, you want to have that subtle distinction between a goal and a craving where mm. you can, like the Buddha himself, he had the goal for liberation, but he had to figure out how to, move there skillfully without causing himself any craving in the process. But um, it is possible, you know, this is a thing that's been around for thousands of years. People have been liberating themselves left and right for such a long time. There's such a strong history of this. And you can see it in, in so many different lineages with people who attain profound, profound amounts of wisdom. Even within a capitalist framework, there is a possibility to just take it to your own next level and relieve yourself of the conditioning that causes you a lot of suffering to constantly be craving for more and just create so much sorrow and mental difficulty to relieve yourself of that tension in a way where you can not only be present, but have this, you know, alleviate your mind so much so that these like natural emergent properties of the mind can start really flourishing, like compassion, equanimity, selfless love, sympathetic joy. Like if you're able to really allow these, um, what in the Buddhist tradition or in the Theravadan tradition, we call the Brahma Viharas, to really allow them to flow, which is your real human nature, right? What 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 capitalism has given us is human habit. So mm-hmm. we have the greed, we have fear, we have this 
you know, evolutionary impulses that are there for your protection and your survival, but they're not going to be there for your freedom and for your thriving, right? Mm -hmm. If you want to really thrive and be free, then you have to connect with your human habit with what's really naturally going to emerge from your raw, pure consciousness. But to be able to get there, you need to do your healing work. You need to do your liberation work. And for a while, the two things go side by side, healing and liberation, but liberation takes it further. Mm -hmm. That's really beautifully expressed. Thank you for that. There is a saying by the Buddha that I teach one thing that is uh, suffering and the end to suffering. And and in my own life and work, what I have said is, and this would this is really what made me excited to be able to talk to you is that I teach one thing, which is liberation and the path to liberation. Mm. And uh, so I really really resonate with taking mindfulness meditation, whatever else we want to call it, whatever else you're doing, centering prayer, uh, mm -hmm. what, whatever tradition, whatever pathway you're using towards the end of that uh, suffering or, you know, towards liberation, uh, because I think that all of us are better for it. And at the same time that we are not broken uh, I loved what you said about what capitalism has given us is is a habit, right? What culture, you know, mm -hmm. much of our mm -hmm. much of our culture has given us our habits that we mistake for who we actually are. These practices and techniques and paths can give us access to something uh, more complete, uh, which is who who we always have been, who we originally <laughs> were. We like really shedding habits and shedding habits rather than um, trying to become something else. So I I appreciate that deeply. I appreciate your sharing here. I appreciate your being here. You all should definitely check out Young. It's spelled Y U N G. Pueblo uh, on Instagram and pick up a copy of Inward. It really is a fantastic entry point, uh, a real way of entering in that is that is gentle, that is kind, that is invitational, and not full of a lot of jargon and stuff that you know would make people feel like they uh, can't really access it. So I appreciate your work. I appreciate what you're doing in the world, and hope that we get to stay connected. Thank you too. I hope you found the conversation with Diego Perez, also known as Young Pueblo, as engaging and as illuminating as I did. Diego gave every single one of us an opportunity to use the window of his own life as a way to see what is possible for each of us with a meditation practice. Giving ourselves access to the possibilities of healing, deepened relationship, unleashed creativity, and all of the other things that come from increased awareness, a stable mind, and an open heart. Diego was also able to see as an activist that it isn't enough to just do work for collective change, but that personal change truly matters. Thank you for listening to Mindful by Design. I hope this has been an awakening and informative experience for you and your mindful journey. If you happen to be one of those people that already have a meditation practice and you'd like to deepen it or you'd like to bring it into your life to share with others, whether through work or at home, 
please visit mindfulcertification.com. That's M-N-D-F-L certification.com. And also to learn about my new Mindful by Design program in which I'll share with you how you can design a mindful life. To get the most out of this course, check out the guided meditations that accompany each episode available only on the Himalaya Learning Platform. Himalaya Learning is an audio learning platform that provides bite-sized courses from world-class thinkers and industry experts to fuel your personal and professional growth. To access exclusive content for this course and others like it, go to Himalaya.com mindful and enter promo code mindful at checkout for your first 14 days free. We hope you enjoy.